0: The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit TrueToneLounge.com or our YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash TrueToneFX. I'm Zach Childs, and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today, our guest is Paul Franklin. Hi. Paul Franklin is arguably one of the greatest steel guitar players of all time. Really? (laughs) (laughs) He's played on innumerable hit singles and records, and he has broadened the appeal and the exposure of the pedal steel by world tours with Dire Straits, sessions with everyone from Bon Jovi to Barbra Streisand and Megadeth, and he's even continued with a teaching method, far from sitting on his laurels, continues to do sessions, continues to tour, and continues to have a Monday night residency with the world-famous Time Jumpers.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> and you know what? I, I got to say something about the Time Jumpers. That's something I never thought I would play Western Swing at all in my life, and, yeah. and uh, when I was asked to join that band, and I thought, I don't know this music, uh, so I've got to go back. I had to backtrack and l- learn Bob Will's music, and, wow. and it's been the treat of my life, because, you know which which is my point you never know what you're going to be asked to play on this instrument so it pays to be ready
2: yeah
0: let's you know let's go in the Wayback machine no. and but not too far back okay. we don't like, want to scare anybody i'm pretty old you know
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so your first big record that you played on was a pop album and it was by a group called the Galleries that's right and it was called, It's So Nice to Be With You. It was a hit, I think, in, in early 70s, maybe 72.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know what? And I could have had more girlfriends if I had told people I played on that record. <laughs> I was in my, um, uh, just started my 11th grade. Uh-huh. And this record's all over the radio. And I'm kind of like creeping down the halls, trying to be oblivious. You know, because I was the Merle Haggard <laughs> and Buck uh-huh. Owens and, and all that stuff. And um, But anyway. So it, how it came to be, first of all, I'll backtrack. I started when I was eight years old. Okay. My dad was a union worker, so he had me join the union. You know, that's what you do if you want, you want to be professional. Right. So, uh, thank God for Bob Dylan. You know, yeah. he had this massive hit, Lay Lady Lay, who uh, Pete Drake played on the record. Mm-hmm. Well, so as things go, always, whatever's popular, every, all the artists kind of seek out that sound. And mm-hmm. it was new. The steel guitar was new to that music and uh so anyway motown started looking for steel players and you're in detroit i'm the only one in the union this eight-year-old kid well i joined when i was 11. okay but so i'm like fast forward 14. Mm -hmm. i started doing sessions like at holland dozier studios wow with uh mckinley jackson who was marvin gaye's musical director he did a solo album and and i walked in and uh you know, and there's, you know, now I know who they were. I didn't know at the time, but Jameson, you know. James Jameson. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Wawa Watson, uh, and that's where I met Dennis Coffey, who produced Gallery's record. Right. So anyway, over a couple of years, I'm doing sessions. Not, you know, not sessions every day, but anytime they needed that instrument, they go, hey, there's this kid <laughs> about 20 miles uh, west of here that can play steel. So I started getting cool calls. I played with this band, uh, Magic, and Stevie Wonder played the solo. On, uh, on one of the tunes I was on, and which I knew who Stevie Wonder was. you know, Right. In school, we we had a diverse listening thing, so we always had, because uh, soul music, it was called in those days, not R&B. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was played half the time, because we had a diverse school, and then the other time was like Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and all, The Beatles, and it's all good. So anyway, uh, I got these calls, and I went in, you know, and, and, and all, during that, I'm still focused on Nashville. I got to move to Nashville, and um, so anyway. But I did get to Dennis Coffee after playing on McKinley Jackson's record. Uh, they saw I could do it, and so uh, they started calling me. and And, and he had, he said, "I have this band, and the record was it." So nice to be with you. And he said, "All I need you to do is play the melody, and that's what that steel solo is." Yeah. It, it went something like this. I don't even remember how to play it. But anyway, that's what it did, you know. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that was easy for me because I was already into Johnny Paycheck. You know, the the stuff in Nashville was like. That kind of stuff. So, So it was much more complex. So. You know, I'm thinking, well, that's not, yeah. you know, to me, I was so glad to do it. But it gave me my first taste of studio. Uh, now I look back at it. I wish I'd stayed in <laughs> Detroit a little bit longer and maybe played a, yeah. you know, experience and really what uh, I had gone through. And uh, the interesting thing is uh, one of the players heard me playing a little jazz. He said, man, you ought to come and play with us. And these guys, that, that's that band. You know, they mm-hmm. played at the Playboy Club and played jazz all around town. Of course, I didn't follow them. You know, that's what I look back, and it's a regret right. that I wish maybe I'd you know f- taken that road. Yeah. You know, because it, you didn't were
0: happen. yeah, you were so focused on getting to Nashville. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. There's times where you don't appreciate what you have at the time because you're all you're thinking about is I've got to get to Nashville. I'm yeah. Not thinking about the fact that you're you're playing with some of the greatest musicians on the that planet. Have ever lived. Yeah. yeah, yeah, James I mean, Jamerson. Yeah, I mean Dennis they're historic. Coffee. I mean they'll yeah.
1: be studied way beyond my lifetime. People are going to go back and study. Uh, they still do. Uh, what's going on that bass line. Yeah. Jamerson played that bass line and the story is that he was high. You know, he's drunk. He came in late for the session and and they're gonna cut the date. So he's he can't really function. So he lays down in the floor and played the improvise that bass part to what's going on. Wow. And that you know yeah. <laughs> now I wanna know what that guy knows <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be that good <laughs> exactly. and, and create like that. So yeah. yeah, I wish I had, you know, yeah. I followed up. Now I'm much more wide in my, uh, I, I never, If uh, my view now is if I hear a music that I don't understand or I don't like, then that means I need to listen to that music, I don't mm-hmm. dismiss it. Cause you never know what you can gain from that and how you can make that apply to um, something you're doing that you do love. Right. And the bottom line is it's just 12 notes and how you piece those 12 notes, you know, together is everything so yeah. so you did finally
0: move to nashville and you toured with barbara mandrell and and uh you know mel tillis and yeah. jerry reed and yeah. and then you you kind of transitioned into into studio work yeah and you were kind of part of you know what uh mark o'connor kind of coined the new nashville cats this this yeah. kind of <laughs> next generation of players that came up and uh some of the innovations that, that you had, you know, at that at that point in the in the eighties was like the Pettibro. So oh, yeah. you had so the, the Petabro was a kind of a resonator Dobro steel guitar, and, and probably the biggest hit you played on was uh Forever and Ever Amen by, yeah. you know, by Randy Travis. And that that kind of where did you get the idea to 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 have a a
1: pedal steel slash you know dobro instrument? Okay. Well, the, the name on the instrument's franklin my yes. father yes uh when i started playing at 8 okay there was a uh, he got me a fender 400 mm-hmm. every nashville player we met said you got to get this kid off this guitar right away it was mm-hmm. already obsolete the mechanics right. and this is what a lot of steel players today think oh i got a fender it's got I'll, I'll be great with that you yeah. don't want to play a cable mechanism like that cuz you can only raise like you can you can do this yeah but if you do that you can't do this you can't lower. And you can't right. lower. So, you've yeah. got to be able to do that with every string, multiple right. times in, in some cases. Right. So, uh, my dad, there's a two-year wait on a show bud mm-hmm. in an eminence, which is what Nashville players use. So, he, my uncle had a body shop, and he said, I can build one of those. And he was gifted. He was a great—he knew how to use machines, and he was a great woods guy. Yeah. And so, um, he built my first double neck. And then the second one he built got him his job as the uh, uh, in nashville so when i moved to nashville at 17 he moved he followed uh, about six months later and went to work for showbud building indoors players wow uh guitars and so because mm-hmm. he was a genius uh with with uh, pivot points and stuff that and which is key to how the the instrument works so he builds guitars mm-hmm. so i'm i'm <laughs> now i'm you know you got to remember like brent and i all of us we we're like was, uh, there was 23 major labels. So we're working. We could clone ourselves and not work all the work we were getting called for. We're right. doing three sessions a day. And Mark O'Connor calls me up. He said, Jerry Douglas can't make this gig. I got a gig with Peter Rowan and, and they were doing this trio. And, you know, the, we're talking world-class. Jerry Douglas is, I always call myself a no-bro player <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> because he's a Dobro player, not me. Right. And, uh, So, anyway, I had an eight-string dobro tuned to the C6 next. So, I could play, you know, because I could, not bluegrass style. I can play those kind of, that was very sloppy. But, anyway, I can play that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. on dobro. So, Mark decided instead of calling it a real dobro player, he said, just come on, we'll try it, you know. Yeah. So, I played this gig. So, the next day, my dad said, well, how'd it go? Because he knew I was really excited to do that. And I said, well, um, I, man, if I had pedals, you know, and uh, I said, man, it would have really been great. I didn't give it any more thought. I went on doing sessions, you know, that, mm-hmm. that was just a one-time experience for me. A week later, my dad said, I think I got to figure out how to build a pedal dobro. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> he said, well, you want me to build you one? And I said, well, yeah. sure. Yeah. So he built the, the very first one that he built is the one I played on forever and ever. And yeah. there's no variations whatsoever. In fact, he never varied the instrument at all. And uh, what people had tried, different uh, great craftsmen had tried, and they, you know, the the cone of a resonator is paper thin. Mm-hmm. So if you put any downward pressure whatsoever, you collapse the cone. Right. So it's, it can't tune. Right. So he came up with these thing, these bars that pulled the string and put just enough the normal amount of tension that just tightening the string up would create on a mm-hmm. cone. And it didn't increase that. And that's with his strengths with, with pivot points and all that. Wow. And he put the this mechanism, the resonator Ooh. would stop right here, and this mechanism is right over here. And these bars pulled the string over, yeah. which maintained enough for tone. And that was the pedal bro. That's all it took wow. was just Everybody else had put palm pedals, and would <clears throat> cut a hole out in, in their guitar trying to do it. So it's not our original idea, by no means, but Dad made it work. Yeah, with and and uh, <laughs> and so when I got it, skills. Yes. I just took it to sessions. I would. I didn't even expect. Uh, uh, the first thing I played it on was a Ricky Van Shelton record, and and uh, and but they just they just wanted me to play things like this, uh, you know. You know, so yeah. you couldn't really tell it was a pedal dobro, but right. but when uh, I played <laughs> with that, when I played that on uh, "Forever and Ever," Amen, everybody said, "I want that sound." Right. So Keith Whitley, I played "Don't Close Your Eyes," mm-hmm. and and different records with that. There were a lot of hit records with it on after that. But anyway, that's how it came to be. It was yeah. a, not my I can't take credit yeah. for it.
0: <laughs> but but you had the best implement. Your your father had the best implementation of it. Exactly. You know, where, yeah. Where it was. Yeah. Uh, so then dire straits come up comes about. But it looks like before that, uh, did you meet Mark through the Chet Atkins you know duet record he with with Mark? Is that how you initially met Mark
1: Knopfler? Well, actually, I didn't play on that record. Okay. But uh, what happened was. Um, a uh, Paul Yandel. I worked with Jerry Reed right. and I played on a song called Nervous Breakdown and I also played I was buddy Emmons sub. There was jam sessions. A so very mm-hmm. very uh, notorious jam sessions called at the Pickin' Parlor called Buddy Spiker and Friends and it was always Lenny Bro and uh Bucky Barrett oh. and usually Buddy Emmons but Buddy was really busy in, in the studio so I was his sub cuz I mm-hmm. you know after I moved to Nashville I pursued playing bebop and jazz on steel. And so that's I, that was like one of my main focuses because I really wanted to catch and find a way to do, uh, get the music out of my head. Right. <laughs> Into the strings. So, onto the strings. And uh, so anyway, by playing in that scenario, Chet knew about me with Jerry Reed, both Jerry and, and Chet. And so when they were going to record Stay Tuned, uh, Paul Yandel, who worked for both Jerry and Chet. He was mm-hmm. their guitar player. He called me up. He said, Hey, Chet's uh, going to do this uh, record with all these rockers, <laughs> you know, and Steve Lukather and all mm-hmm. those guys. And um, so anyway, he said, you got any songs? Cause they knew I wrote rocks type songs, you know? Mm-hmm. And so Paul's just trying to help out a friend get me a cut, you know? Yeah. And so I, I sent this tape over, had about 10 songs. And so... Nothing ever I never even got turned down you know i got, I heard no word about it at all uh fast forward to uh about a, two years later seems like uh Martin Offler came to town. well, I get this phone call uh from Chet uh saying hey do you play rock do you do you feel comfortable playing rock and i mm-hmm. said well yeah i I do and uh he, he didn't want to recommend me unless I was really sure I thought I could do it. Right. And he said, well, now for's coming to town. He's got uh, a one song, you know, a couple songs on this Nodding Hillbilly record. Yes. And so uh, we went in the studio. I, he, so I got the recommendation. I booked the session. And we went in, and, and I ended up playing. Mark and I hit it off immediately. You know, and, and Mark was really intrigued. He loved country music, and he loved the sound. When you listen to his style— Mm-hmm. On guitar, there's a lot of steel things, you know, I mean, just interval-wise. And uh, so anyway, I ended up playing on the whole album in that afternoon. And it was uh, over at uh, Soundstage Studios. And so we went and ate David Conrad, a pop, very famous music publisher and friend of Chet's, came over and got us. We went and ate. And, and Mark goes, you got to play with my band. And I'm thinking, oh, we'll do the tour with the Notting Hill plays. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, that. No, he said, my big band. And he was being in dire straits, and I and I invited my son, and I, I remember just specifically telling my son because he was excited. I said, you know, this may not happen. I it's a, it's an honor that he think about that, and I kind of yeah. brushed that idea off. I didn't, you know, it's hard for me to believe that that something like that could happen to me. And uh, so anyway, sure enough, I did the nodding hilly thing, and we went out and and. Uh, and I had gotten the call to do the next Dire Straits record, you know, which was huge because Brothers in Arms was the largest selling next to Thriller. Mm-hmm. It introduced the CD thing, so this was a huge record. No matter what you did, and I thought to the chance to get to play on that, yeah, the follow up was monumental, and uh, just for the exposure of the instrument, right? And and uh, so anyway. I was excited but that's how that came to be and 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 of course I learned so much from Mark about orchestrating you know and I I view him as a true musical genius you know in composition and and um, note placement you know you you listen to all those records and he doesn't dictate uh, everything that's played by no means unless you don't go in the right direction then he'll say well, try a, try an e flat there try that right you know and he's always right yeah. you know because it, it he sees the the overall picture and and uh, but anyway so i learned yeah, it was a great experience i learned so much from him yeah hi everybody i'm paul franklin i gotta show you something i've got this everywhere i have equipment i've got a uh one of these one spot to plug in all my effects i've got them in in the floorboard of my car, I've had it that way. I got tired of using batteries, and this this always maintains the best sound of all my effects.
0: Playing with Dar Straits and playing on that big of a stage in front of all those people must have been, you know, quite a thrill to get to expose people to this instrument. Because, I mean, to so
1: many, I mean, it's kind of a, they've never heard of the pedal steel before, never yeah. seen one. That's a really, um, it was an eye-opener for me. Uh, and I remember uh, going to the rehearsals. Mm-hmm. I brought everything I owned. <laughs> you know, every stomp box, everything like that, uh, to the, uh, the initial uh, rehearsals for the record. And I, I asked Mark, I said, what do you want me to play? He said, "Polly." He said, you have to remember that every preconceived notion of your instrument is in America. He said, "You're going to play music for the world." Yeah. And he said, "This—the sound of this instrument—is just as new as a synthesizer or or anything else." He said, "Just fit the music." Yeah. He said, "You don't have to color it into something else." And that is—that's <laughs> monumental in itself uh, because we we uh, relate the instrument always as. All that kind of crazy stuff is country, but yeah. if but if you go uh, like calling Elvis or something yes. like that, then you hear the instrument. It's it's not country anymore. So right. he he opened the door to just play it, uh, you know, musically. And in fact, that that intro, calling Elvis, was uh, he was originally it was going to be rockabilly, mm-hmm.
2: that
1: kind of thing. And I was sitting. In my, we had ISO booths, booths at uh, uh, Air in London, and so Jeff Carl's, we're all just got. We have our, we're noodling, what we call. Right. And I'm sitting doing this is my exercise, <laughs> just to loosen up my hands. Yeah. And, and so Carl starts playing along with it. Yeah. And then, and then <laughs> next thing I hear is Mark. Mark goes, calling Elvis. Is anybody home? Da-da-da. And that we just started that it it shifted just like that, and, and so my point <laughs> in in saying that is not that that's anything genius. The genius was Martin Ophel, right? Realizing he let go of any of his preconceived notions about composition, and he heard something that's fresh, and he and he put it. It's like the story that Herbie Hancock tells on he was out with Miles, and he made this mistake. I mean, he said it was just a bonafide mistake chord, Mm -hmm. and he said, and I'm, he said, I'm, yeah, (laughs) you know, and he said Miles played a note that made it right, yeah, and so that was not music to me. That was just something that I could limber my hands up with, right. And Mark turned it into music, right. Became that was the opening of the show. Yeah, that was the opening of the show and everything. So it's uh, uh, back to his theory. You know, just once I started uh, viewing the instrument and realized, and once I got, it's great because it was true. We were playing, uh, we played 21 days straight in, in Paris, like 20,000 people a night. We played stadiums like they're sit-down gigs. Like in uh, Amsterdam, I think we played to 60,000 people for three or four nights in a row. And, and you know, I mean, it's just amazing that the business and, and the, the masses that they played. It was hard for me to believe, but I I knew it happened. Was uh, they on the the live DVD? It said we played to five and a half million people on that tour. Wow! And and so the consistent thought about the instrument—they accepted it. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going ah, oh, no country. You know, they weren't ruining right. the band. None right. of the uh, interviewers ever said, "Wow, what a horrible mistake." Yeah, you know, they just accepted the instrument, and it it gave me the confidence to realize. You know, even when I'm on session dates, like a lot of times I think, "Oh, this is, you know, it's John Mayer. I should probably hook up a distortion or, you know, or whatever." I don't. Yeah. You know, I, I avoid that unless they're just you can tell that they want you to go there. Now nowadays they want you to go because there's a lot more exposure with Robert Randolph, mm-hmm. Sacred Steelers. They they know that sound, so in, in I'll do that, and I I, I love it. Um, but but I I still know that if you just play this instrument right and you make it musical, it fits. Because yeah. if, if you're not listening to country music, you don't know it is country. All unless right. you do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, then, then you're country. <laughs> so
0: what are some ways that consciously you would make the pedal steel sound less country? Is it just avoiding some of the really kind of what, what people would call weepy things? or
1: Well, actually, you can play, um okay. I'm going to put just a little bit of delay, and this is just reverb, but like a, uh, you know, you can make it slap back, it's still pure, and I did this a lot with Dire Straits, but now that's, that's weepy, but that's like yeah. Jeff Beck. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh... So all of a yeah. sudden, it's like a human voice. And so, you know, it's just yeah. interpretation. That's also the same as country. So, if, yes. if I... So, mm-hmm. it's, it, that's why I say there's only 12 notes. Right. It's It becomes how uh, you interpret those right. notes. So, it's it's all in the nuance of how the instrument is played. So, it okay, you, you can go... That's Rob yeah. Mooney. Yeah. yeah. But but I played it in the first more of a rhythm that would be more uh, like Coldplay or whatever, right? Know, or in a modern pop thing. So right. It, it's not that you have to learn this whole other vo- vocabulary. You have to learn the nu- nuance of let me just kill kill that delay. But you have to learn the nuance of how the instruments played. Right. And then then the whole world is open because you can put distortions like like. Uh, there's a, you know, the early steel players would do what they call pull-off. You know, that kind of stuff. But now you can do pull-offs like this. So you can, you can approach the instrument that way. It's the same technique. Right. But it's just, okay, learning that, you know, my theory is like, I always say, what if. Mm-hmm. Okay. If I know this, I could go. You know, what if I go up the neck doing that? Why right. just because uh, Buddy Emmons played it here, and that's he did an instrumental or whatever, and, and he's my favorite player. So yeah. I, I'm not. I don't mean that in a derogatory yeah. sense. It's just when you learn. You know, we're all meant to stand on the shoulders. Of the guys that came before us, right? You know, that's that's what that's a great thing about music. Uh, uh, look at the classical c- composers today. I mean, they've what's great is they've got Bach and they got Mozart and and uh, you know everybody to stand on. And they go, they wrote like this, and this guy wrote. He was more atonal, right? And so that you've got all this stuff to grow on, and and that's uh, uh, that's kind of my approach to the instrument, you know. And and it's and I've got I'm sixty four this month. And so I've got a, a view uh, looking back. Uh, I can see where I wasted time. I can see what really helped me and almost immediately. So, but in you, your question, so what makes it different is it's how I interpret it. Like, like if you're on a pop, watch this. I'll do, um, if I was on a pop date and somebody said, hey, man, we just want ethereal. We want colors like it." And if they, they could say Daniel Lenoir, but if they didn't say that, and uh i might do something like this like see with delays just like a guitar player you know just any and and are, and that that's nothing more and again that's a, what's cool is that it's all the same stuff that you learn in right. book 1 yeah but it's it, it's just having the vision you know and it and, and i think all of that my theory is if i can do it anybody can do it cuz yeah. i'm still that i'm i'm still that same little 8 year old kid that didn't know what he was learning and, and walked away from Motown. And yeah. I should have stayed. I should have stayed there a little bit longer. But, yeah. but uh.
0: so getting back onto, you know, of course, you know the the Dire Straits you know gig kind of uh, it, it it showcased you to a wider variety of players, and then you started getting calls for you know non country oh, type sessions. Tell oh, us yeah. a little bit about you know some of the sessions that you played on.
1: Yeah, you know, in in a non-country or yeah. you, know, in, you know, some of it started a little bit before uh, Dire Straits. I played on Brewer. Uh, there was a band called Brewer and Shipley, mm-hmm. and they had One Took Over the Line. Yes, because that the Detroit stuff introduced kind of got me on that road, but uh, by. Leaps and bounds, dire straits gave me the world exposure, and and during that uh, when I was in the middle of the tour, and and I'm like when uh, Dream of the Blue Turtles or whatever that that it instrumental was sting. on Sting's first yes. solo album, and uh, and you know and, and when he was using jazz players and everything, I just love that. It, to me, it was like everything came together mm-hmm. in one form of music, and I love Steely Dan and all this. So uh, I'm in the middle of the <laughs> tour, and we're we're gonna have. Uh, our first leg of the tour, the European leg, and we we had eight days off. And I was gonna go home, and uh, uh, I got a call from our tour manager, Tony Wiggins. He said, hey, Paulie, uh, Sting's called, and they want a steel player, and they saw you on the video. We had a video of calling Elvis. Yes. And so anyway, so that's how that came to be. You know, they just, yeah. they, you know, I was there, and they thought, let's get Mark's guy. Yeah. And so, and, uh, so I played on Munificent Seven, which is a seven-four, Tune, and I'd really never messed with time signatures, mm-hmm. and and uh, but it was interesting when I was there. I was I, I got to educate Sting a little bit about what the instrument could do. You know, I was showing him because he loves jazz. So I right. started playing voicings, and you know, and and so I noticed he used steel about on two or three albums after that. You know, I couldn't do do the the next one because I was doing George Strait educating him was a great thing but anyway i he educated me on time signatures because the first part is a seven seven four and then i you know it's first time i had a chance to play on it we we didn't do anything in nashville like that right and so um anyway so but the the uh uh what he hired me for is to be the grand Opry in munificent seven because when it goes in this it was sting's version of country mm-hmm. and so it went into this country part and so he said how would you he i remember he how would you kick off a country song and i, I remember he said that's what i want yeah and so but i had to come out of a seven four bar you know right. so it was a little, it was a little tricky for me to just you know a few times listening and then then i got it but they mm-hmm. they um
0: because it has a uh, metric modulation
1: where it's going from one time signature yeah. to another one it goes yeah, and into you the never chords. hear it it's like it yeah. trans so vinny yeah. vinny Kailudo man yeah. he's brilliant well all those are you know dominique and Sting, they they all they live in that world of of uh, polyrhythms and and uh but anyway so that was that was great and and I got calls i mean i got um, you know, to work with Streisand and, and John Mayer and different, different things. And because uh, Don Was, was uh, The Was Not Was was one of our opening acts. So I met Don. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and so Don would call, uh, you know, on several things. And the and, uh, and, uh, most recent was the, about two albums back of John Mayer. And, uh, you know, so I, I felt like it gave me, you know, and not that I'm great, but it just because I was the guy in that chair. I got a chance to expose a lot of people to and and especially the way Mark allowed the instrument to be, you know, like I I played it wasn't like we're just gonna use it on the new songs and then when we do latest trick, you leave the stage. It was like, No, you play on Telegraph Road. I played on right. all except for Sultans, because he wanted Sultans to go back to the initial band. Right small band the four piece sound. yeah the yeah. four piece but yeah. other than that i we played on everything what was your favorite song
0: to play when you were on the road with dire straits
1: i often get asked what's my favorite song yeah <laughs> i always say the next one the next uh, one okay well all of them uh, for different reasons there's a part of me that loves the you know it's like the most complicated part should be the one you'd love right but i actually like you know um, uh if it's so beautiful and all i got to do is this And then, and then I hear the strings around it and I hear all this orchestration. Mm-hmm. That knocks me out right. because I think I've got to place that just absolutely perfect. And right. that's as hard to play when you, when you start getting into the, the incremental ways that can be played. So uh, I don't really have a, a favorite thing. I mean, I, I always, the, the one I, I, I stressed about the most was Calling Elvis because we opened our show with this riff. Right, and, and for most of the early shows we had three triangles in front of the stage mm-hmm. and so and uh, there was a light show going on and so i had to play that sometimes for five minutes right and i'm going oh my god <laughs> i've <laughs> never played it for five minutes <laughs> you know of course you don't want to sit there and mess up so uh i, I got my chops up Let's yeah. say that <laughs> yeah but it, but that was uh that was fun and and um uh, uh you know the the hardest thing in that to to do was uh, playing the solo on every street. You know because we okay. we tried that different. You know everybody tried playing a solo on it, and you know and 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 uh, I was the last one. You know that they tried they tried keyboards and only because, and I didn't hear the instrument fit. I thought, well, Are you sure I don't? Yeah, I'm not sure what to play. And then then so a few times, and then I came up with that. Uh, I can't even put So I forget how it goes But I came yeah. up with that line Once that was And that's something I've learned in music Once you Once you uh, It's like the writer Getting his first hook You know You can sit there For hours and go But once yeah. you get The the idea or the concept For something Then it Then it fell into place Right But And and the steel guitar Being able to do that It became like a human voice, and that's why because uh, those changes—I don't—I forget what they are—but they're moving. There's a change every da 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 da, 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 da. The, the right. changes are moving every, you yeah. know, like a triplets, and so it, it was hard to play over, and and so that worked, you know. So I got lucky.
0: <laughs> yeah. What are some uh, maybe some other sessions where you feel like you've you know really kind of. Like something that was satisfying, where you feel where you felt like you had taken the steel guitar to another another place.
1: Uh, well, I I never think of me <laughs> taking it to another place, but yeah, I there there's times that uh, that uh, when I got called to do Megadeth, and, and I can't remember what I played on it, yeah. but I thought and I you know so I went I went you know I knew about Metallica, but I hadn't actually hadn't listened to Megadeth mm-hmm. before that, so I went and uh, bought a couple records and and I heard the music and go. What in my mind? I'm going, what am I gonna do? Yeah, you know, and and so I was pleased in the first record. And and of course, Dave uh, Mustang, uh, you know, they were in Nashville, but you know, they weren't sure about putting a steel guitar on it. This was the producer's call,
2: Uh, Dan Huff, yeah,
1: Dan Huff. Yeah, Uh, but Dave was there, and so I did this. We, uh, Jeff Balding was brilliant, He, he got the sounds up through his gear and we got this massively distorted sound. Okay. And so I did a, a slide that you know everybody thought it was the guitar, mm-hmm. but it was the steel.
2: Yeah. And,
1: and and I couldn't duplicate that sound here cuz I'd have to have his gear. So then the second album that I played, <laughs> they said, and hey, you know, you Dave goes, you you can let it sound like a steel a little bit." <laughs> cuz <'Cause> he <laughs> he he became more comfortable. And that's what I I typically find is people you know, as they become more comfortable with it, they'll let things surface more. And so I used a Leslie, you know, yeah. and uh, uh, you know more keyboardist and 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 uh, and played a few little not not anything, you know, more pads. I can't remember the song, but things, you know, that kind of thing with this warbly yeah sound. And and so I was surprised that that kind of I thought well because I don't I'm not sure there's been pedal steel on <laughs> that, that kind of whatever you call that kind of that metal but yeah. it's almost punk uh, in some ways I guess because of the, the speed the speed of, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was getting a lesson on punk last night our drummer uh, Jerry Rowe, uh he he has a punk band and so he was giving us all a lecture about the dB there's a beat I don't know anything but yeah. just like and uh so oh. anyway, now what
0: what band were you playing with, uh, Jerry Rose? Was That just a, a session you were. That playing? was
1: uh, we were doing this young kid. He's uh like a little savant <laughs> kid, uh, Mason Ramsey, okay. who uh, last thirty days he's got two million uh, Instagram followers. Oh wow! Is uh he's a yodeler. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and, uh, and and we we did. Uh, uh, Ellen heard him. She had him on her show. Then he and he did mm-hmm. like the. Tonight kind of shows, and you know, uh, and then uh, he did the Grand Ole Opry twice, and it's just like everybody's embracing him, and it's just, you know, he's 11 years old, and he sings like Hank Williams. Okay, so we were doing this, but Jerry's has his own punk band that he tours with, and and uh, so anyway, he was educating that Jimmy Lee Slose was asking him various questions, and we were (laughs) getting learned a lot more than I ever knew. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of depth in that music.
0: Yeah. This has been an audio presentation by True Tone.
2: True-tone.com.